Welcome back to the Untold Civil War podcast. I know we're all being good citizens, quarantined and staying indoors, but we're not going to miss out on any Untold Civil War. And for this month's episode, we'll be looking at the cavalry. I thought I'd start a little discussion slash debate online as to who was the best Confederate cavalry commander. Was it Jeb Stewart? Was it Forrest? Was it Wheeler? Well, we're going to get answers about who the Untold Civil War podcast thinks is the best Confederate cavalry commander. So put on your spurs, draw your sabers, and let's delve into some Untold Civil War. Hello, welcome back to the Untold Civil War podcast. Today I'll be discussing the Civil War career of Wade Hampton, arguably one of the most solid cavalry commanders of the war. And I'll be discussing this with Dr. Fritz Hamer. Dr. Hamer is a longtime historian who has authored several books. He has worked in the South Carolina State Museum and is now the archivist and curator at the Confederate Relic Room and Military Museum. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Oh, glad to be here. I think we'll just open it up with, uh, can you briefly give an introduction to Wade Hampton III? Uh, where was he born and who were his parents? Well, Wade Hampton uh, was born originally in Charleston, uh, but he um, grew up, got his education here in Columbia, essentially. His his father was Wade Hampton II, uh, who uh, was from a long line of, of people that had come out of Virginia. His father had come down from Virginia before the Revolution, and after the Revolution, Wade Hampton I uh, established um, a, a plantation that that uh, by the 1790s grant began to grow rice essentially here in the uh, Richland County area where Columbia is and soon became one of the wealthiest people in the state and uh, his son the second uh, continued that and Wade the third was educated with the idea that he would be a major uh, plant plantation owner and manager of both a large plantation here in South Carolina and also in um, Louisiana. What was he doing just before the war broke out? He was just running those plantations? Exactly. I mean, as a member of the aristocracy of South Carolina, of course, he had other duties. Uh, He was a member of the uh, state legislature legislature, um, who didn't do a whole lot. He he was on, and also on the board of uh, South Carolina College, which is now the University of South Carolina. Uh, but his major interests were in plantations and his large enslaved workforce that numbered uh, just before the Civil War over a thousand uh, enslaved people. Wow. Uh, and he his other passion was hunting. He loved to hunt. And uh, he had a, a lodge up in uh, North Carolina in the mountains that he would go to uh, to relax and to hunt. Uh, so those were his two passions. Uh, in terms of military background, he had very little. Uh, he was an officer in the South Carolina militia. But if you know uh, anything about the militia and antebellum era, particularly in the South, militias didn't do much but uh, gather maybe every month or so to supposedly drill, but more often to eat and drink and be merry. (laughs) And that's not too bad, right? 
that's that's good as long as you don't have to uh, go to war. Exactly right, and of course the war does break out, and now he does have to prepare for war, and he actually forms his own legion. Now I've heard of other regiments being formed, other units, but the Legion is very unique uh, in its organization. Can you talk about that? Well, a Legion uh, at the beginning of the Civil War was usually made up of three major components, infantry, cavalry, and uh, horse artillery. And that's what uh, Hampton's Legion was made up of. He, um, just to backtrack a wee bit, in the midst of the uh, Fort Sumter crisis, he was not in South Carolina. He was out west at his uh, plantation in Louisiana, uh, managing that. And um, he basically was not a a major proponent of secession, but uh, he could see that there was a break coming. And he obviously, like many leaders, particularly Robert E. Lee, decided when his state seceded that he would have to stay loyal to it. And so when uh, the Fort Sumter was shelled. He immediately uh, got back uh, to South Carolina. Of course, in those days, it wasn't immediate. Uh, but he did get back here soon after the Fort Sumter surrendered and offered his services to the governor, Governor Pickens, Andrew Pickens of South Carolina. He offered to enlist as a, a private. Um, and uh, soon it became, he began to realize that men and organization was needed, and he offered to form a legion, and he invested much of his own money in uh, recruiting, uniforming, and equipping uh, about a thousand men in these three different components, infantry, cavalry, and artillery. The recruits that he was gathering, were they from a certain part of South Carolina? Did they come from all over South Carolina? They came from various places. Uh, the Washington Light Infantry, that uh, was an organization in Charleston that went back um, to the before the War of 1812. They uh, formed a unit in the Legion. Uh, there were a couple of units from uh, the Columbia area, and there were so many that offered their offered to join the Legion that Hampton had to turn them down in the early uh, that first few months. Um, and they initially trained here in the Columbia area, and uh, in June, they were sent north uh, to Richmond. Because Richmond's gearing up, going to uh, meet the northern host? Right. Uh, you know, the things were still kind of uh, unclear as exactly what would happen, um, but it was beginning to appear that some kind of clash was was soon going to happen, and there was a, a lot of talk in the North that uh, Lincoln, when he got his first 75,000 volunteers organized and enough sent into the Washington area, they would uh, march to Richmond and end the rebellion immediately. Well, um, that was not to be the case, of course. Uh, Beauregard... PGT Beauregard was put in command of this first Southern Army in, in uh, Richmond, having been the hero of uh, the surrender of Fort Sumter in Charleston. And they moved north from Richmond and then ultimately met McDowell's Ar Union Army at Bull Run, or what the South usually refers to as uh, First Manassas. 
and uh, that is where Hampton would receive his baptism of fire. Now, his uh, he was with his infantry. The uh, artillery was still back in Richmond, in part because there wasn't transport to get him up to uh, Manassas. But uh, Hampton proved himself an adept, born-again soldier almost, and leader, because uh, he was defending the flanks of the Confederates at a, a crucial time in the battle, um, and he was wounded there, his first wound in the war. Uh, but they proved themselves to be quite uh, adept and held the line, and along with uh, uh, Jackson, uh, they held back the north and then found a gap in the northern lines and uh, pushed through, and that uh, led to the uh, the, the, the defeat of, of McDowell's army. It does seem to me that even despite having, like you said, very limited military experience, he really was a natural when it came to being on a battlefield. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he epitomized the cavalier, leader, uh, chivalry, chivalrous uh, man of, of the South that you sometimes hear about. Uh, often that isn't the case, but in in, in Wade Hampton III's uh, case, he was a born leader. Uh, and, you know, some of that may come out of the fact that he was brought up to to manage a lot of people on a plantation. So he realized that as an officer, it was his duty to look after his men, and it, the first duty always is to look after men. And then once they are have uh, their rations and and their billets, then you can look after yourself. Uh, And Hampton would show that throughout his leadership during the entire war. Uh, He he always put his men first in in almost every situation. Right. I've even read a story at Manassas that there was a point in the battle where he actually picked up a rifle and told his men, just do as I do. And he reloaded and you know took aim and fired right and that that's the way he um you know he led uh, by example uh we hear a lot about tin horn commanders who tell people what to do but uh they uh they're not going to do it themselves but hampton was always the one to uh, show by example and uh he was always respected and loved by everyone under his command as far as i can tell so there he was serving with his infantry. Do you have any other stories of his exploits in close combat? Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, in Gettysburg, when uh, by then he had become one of uh, Jeb Stewart's uh, lieutenants commanding two or three um, you know, squadrons of, uh, or more, you know, small divisions of cavalry. He led a charge uh, against uh, federal troops, and um, he went after a couple of uh, Union cavalrymen and used his saber to cut down one, and then his pistol to another. And as he was doing that, he himself received a very severe flesh wound to his head, um, and it was so severe that. Um, after Gettysburg, he had to go uh, back to Richmond and ultimately to Columbia to recover because uh, he was very severely wounded. So without a doubt, throughout Hampton's career, he's serving right there on the front line with his troops. Now, he did serve with the infantry at Manassas, 
But as you state right. later, he ends up going into the arm of the cavalry. Well, first of all, you got to realize Hampton's background. He was a horseman, a natural horseman, and he had been brought up that way, um, you know, growing up in South Carolina. And um, now, during after uh, Bull Run or Manassas, there's kind of a lull. Not a lot's going on for the rest of the year in terms of major engagements. There's skirmishing, and Hampton is, uh, you know, put on the line periodically with his troops to. Make, to defend the line against possible Union incursions, but what it, it becomes a very boring uh, kind of campaign from the end of the summer of 1861 until the fall of 1862, and it's in this early spring of 62 that the Confederate government, in in conjunction with its commanders, uh, decide they have to totally reorganize the army uh, because. At Bull Run in July of 1861, you had these state units that sort of were, you know, almost, they had their own esprit de corps, but they weren't a well-coordinated fighting unit. Um, And the Confederate government realized if they were going to succeed in this war, that they, they had to have a unified command structure. And so... Uh, the designated companies that came out of rural communities, whether they were Abbeville count, uh, District in South Carolina or Charleston District or Columbia, that had you know these rather interesting names uh, like the Richland Guards, all of that was thrown out and they were given numerical designations under their state and then put under a commander. And as they were doing this, the legion that Hampton had organized for this effort was split up. And uh, it, while the men itself tried to maintain that link with the legion, they were given different designations. And the horse artillery became part of a larger unit, as did the cavalry and then the infantry. And Hampton was chosen to take his infantry and join with Stuart's uh, growing group of of cavalry, which would become the major uh, eyes and ears of the Army of Northern Virginia that have become so famous. And Hampton was selected to do this. And um, he was somewhat reluctant at first because he felt a, a loyalty to these soldiers that he had uh, led at um, Manassas, but uh, he saw the value of of being in the cavalry, and he accepted it. For my listeners who might not know about cavalry, infantry, artillery, can you explain a little bit about the role of cavalry? Because as you said, it was a little more interesting to Hampton. What what exactly was Confederate cavalry doing? Well, cavalry... uh, Cavalry were used to as reconnaissance and force in front of the major armies, and they would be sent out to find out what the enemy was doing and then bring back reports to uh, commanders. First, Stuart, who would then relay it to Lee uh, as time went on. Um, And they would sometimes be sent on raids in, in in, in reconnaissance, to disrupt the enemy's uh, 
supply lines, uh, which Stewart did very effectively in 1862. Um, Hampton would be part of it, and he would also be involved in other raids into enemy uh, lines. So uh, they were, you know, in today's terms, um, they were kind of like the uh, observers, the aerial observers, uh, without being aerial, uh, of uh, the Civil War. Uh, they they could move quickly on their horses, uh, could uh, usually get away from uh, the enemy if they were being uh, shadowed, uh, tracked down. Um, and horse mobility uh, was the first mobile kind of forces in in uh, military terms, which of course were replaced uh, in the 20th century by tanks and uh, armored cars and half tracks. And of course, Stuart is a very colorful character as well. Coming into this world of the new Confederate cavalry, what was Hampton's relationship with these other cavalry commanders? Well, despite Hampton's distinction as a cavalier, a gentleman of the South, one of his deficiencies in the eyes of many Southern leaders was he wasn't a West Point graduate. And, um, you know, he didn't have the uh, the credentials that were expected of a commander uh, of this distinction. Whereas, of course, Stuart was a West Point grad, Lee, of course, was a West Point grad, and, and many of the other uh, leaders, particularly from Virginia, had uh, West Point uh, degrees. So it was kind of like a little, shall we say, uh, clique, and Hampton didn't fit into that very well. Um, on the, and then on the, other, and the other thing about Hampton is he was very serious. He wasn't a, a very brash um, person that loved what we would call today uh, publicity. He wanted to do the job as efficiently and with the least amount of uh, injury and uh, to his soldiers and get it done and then get home. Uh, Stewart was just the opposite. Stewart, uh, being a West Point man, but he was also he he loved publicity as it was known in those days. He loved to dance, and in times uh, you know behind the lines when they weren't on weren't campaigning, he he had a, his own special group of musicians that would play for him. They would uh, gather the the local ladies and have these fantastic dances with feasts and. Uh, Stuart loved the pomp and ceremony of the military. He he loved to bring his troops out uh, to parade and uh, have special events uh, to show before his uh, his commanders, like Woodley. Uh, Hampton didn't have much use for this kind of stuff, uh, and he always kind of stayed in the shadows when it came down to to these very uh, entertaining. Uh, kinds of activities that Stuart loved. And so there was never any a cl- close friendship between the two of them. Stuart, you know, I think he respected Hampton for his abilities, but he, first of all, and the other thing was Stuart was, uh, you know, a fairly young man. He was in his late 20s, early 30s, and Hampton was in his 40s, fairly senior, especially right. for somebody uh, that was, uh, you know, serving near the front lines, on the front lines, like they both were. Um, and so that there was another 
issue between the two of them. Now, Hampton uh, would often, uh, as the war continued, and his relation, he felt Stuart was kind of slighting him. And he would write letters home complaining about how he was being treated and a few times saying, you know, I think I may have to resign and come home. I just can't put up with this, uh, uh, the way I'm being treated. Um, and uh, Stuart, from what I can t- find, never really viewed it as a feud. Um, you know, he saw Hampton as his subordinate who was very competent uh, and left it at that. Uh, and I think uh, Hampton, because of the age difference and the fact that uh, he felt that Stewart was a little bit cavalier in some of his operations that would uh, leave his men very uh, exhausted, like there's that famous ride around McClellan that Stewart led in uh, – 1862, uh, early summer of 1862, he took a, a force of about a thousand men and went all around McClellan, never got touched by the, the Union forces. But in doing so, his men were on, in the saddle constantly for virtually 72 hours or more. And by the time they managed to get back to Confederate lines, they were basically sleeping in the saddles. Uh, Stuart Law didn't lose many, but it was a very dangerous operation that was originally not supposed to be uh, so brazen. And uh, Hampton found that to be cavalier and very dangerous operation that he seemingly would not have done. Right. Uh, from what you're telling me, it seems that Hampton, more than the publicity, the fame, the color, the the being the dandy, much more level-headed. And he really did look out for his troop troopers. Yeah, yeah. He, he, this was a, a, you know grim business, and he wanted to make sure that his men under him were served in the best way possible that could be. And um, he, he was he was always doing his best to find the rations, the equipment, the horses that his men needed. Now, of course, as the war progressed and things for the South grew grimmer, it was harder and harder for him to to do this. But he did everything possible that he could. Uh, And he avoided major clashes when he didn't think they had a a good chance of success. And one of the things that he instituted was fighting from from on the ground as infantry, horse almost, where instead of galloping to the battle, he would uh, have uh, one man designated for ten horses to keep them, and then the other nine would go forward as infantry. That way, they were uh, less exposed to, to enemy fire and could uh, come upon their enemy uh, more, e- more what uh, secretively. That uh, right. Stewart was uh, was willing to take risk with his men if he saw that as an opportunity to to win a victory and provide give him uh, more glory, so to speak. Right, and I mean, if you look at Civil War history, there's been several um, cavalry charges, big or small, that have been absolutely disastrous. Right, right. Um, so, you know, the yeah. fact that Hampton was able to see that and, and institute this new policy, these new tactics, uh, shows that despite, without the West Point training, he was a modern general, in a way. Well, yeah, that's the interesting thing. And, of course, uh, well, there's a lot to be said for someone that 
gets a West Point graduate uh, degree that also leads to a myopic look. There's only one way to look at things because you have a certain way you're taught at West Point to do at stuff. And Hampton didn't have that. So he, he was more willing to take, uh, t- go in a new direction, even if it didn't follow the, the traditions of, of a West Point graduate. Right. And eventually he would take command of the entire cavalry arm, correct? That's right. Um, uh, Stewart uh, was mortally wounded at Yellow Tavern, a major cat, one of the last big cavalry battles uh, of the of of actually the Western world, and certainly in the in uh, North America. Um, and after that, Hampton was put in kind of uh, temporary command of the cavalry of the Northern of Army of Northern Virginia, and this is where the issue of his credentials came into came to hurt him because Lee was reluctant initially to give him command. Um, and he uh, did not immediately make him the commander uh, to replace Stuart. But by the end of the summer of, of 1864, uh, he did. And um, that is when Hampton showed his, his uh, amazing ability as a commander where he well, he was not someone, as I've said earlier, that liked to take major risks. By this fall of 1864, the Army of Northern Virginia was in a very perilous condition. The supplies were extremely low, food was low, and um, he had reports that uh, at um, um, the headquarters of Grant's major supply center, City Point, they had a huge stock of um, beef cattle, and this is where the famous beef cattle raid occurred with Hampton leading the way. With um, several hundred of his cavalry, they went through enemy lines and managed to bring out over, I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, 3,000 head of cattle back to Lee, which uh, provided them a significant ration for the next month. Uh, that helped the Army of Northern Virginia continue its defense at Petersburg. So even not being as colorful as these other Confederate cavalry commanders, he was still able to conduct these daring raids that would equal the raids of Stuart. Yes, when he saw that when he really needed to, he could do it, but he made sure as best he could in such uh, an event that he did it uh, with as low a risk as possible. And, you know, I guess I'm a li- obviously biased, but when I look, survey all the commanders in, in the war, Hampton has, should be way up there with a lot of the others. I mean, Stuart I outshined him in part because of his, uh, he was so, so much more colorful, but Hampton was just as capable and perhaps even a better commander than Stuart was. Right, and I think they even made a, a movie about the, the beef steak raid, right? Alvarez Kelly, the Western. Um, but uh, unfortunately, Wade Hampton doesn't make a, a showing in that uh, movie. No, <laughs> no. no and, and you know that's, and it's, I guess it's part of the way history's been taught, uh, and uh, how the Virginian, 
leadership uh, outshines everybody else, certainly as it pertained to the campaigns in Virginia, uh, even though Virginians were not the only ones involved in all those uh, bloody encounters. Uh, Hampton uh, played just as distinguished a role as any of them, but because, as I've said before, he, he lacked that West Point pedigree, and he wasn't from Virginia. All of that uh, didn't didn't help in his uh, future uh, reputation. Right. So, I mean, that's why you would say he's probably, unfortunately, overlooked when it comes to, to a large the- degree. I mean, I, I guess it's hard. Living since I live down in South Carolina, most people know who Hampton is and uh, look oh, upon right. him as being uh, quite the leader, but. Uh, once you get out of the state, he kind of uh, loses his aura, um, and that's the way it's been. And, you know, another part of the problem, you know, from a historical perspective, is there's been uh, oh, there was only one major biography written of Wade Hampton for the first hundred years after the war, and that was published back in 1947. Now, in the last ten years, twelve, fifteen years, there's been three major biographies written of him. Uh, so, whereas Stewart has had several that were, that, you know, they were writing them in the 19th century about him, and he was part of that Virginian icon that uh, people like Jubal Early put on pedestals as early as the 1870s. And then there's also that part of, you know, same with Stonewall Jackson, when someone passes away in combat, there's they start to develop their own legend after that. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's a good point to, to make as well. You know, Jackson uh, is shot by his own men uh, after Chancellorsville, and then Stewart uh, dies, you know, after a major engagement. So they 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 sort of went to Valhalla and right. uh, became kind of the gods of uh, uh, the Confederate Army, and uh, you might argue even of the Civil War itself. Oh, right, right, and you know how many people ask all the time or, or say, well, at Stonewall Jackson, I've been at Gettysburg, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you get a lot of that. Oh, all the time uh, when anybody ever reads it. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then Stewart, you know, there was a tank named after him uh, in, right. early in World War II. Um, so his, his legacy is, was still very strong um, uh, as it, uh, it generally is even today. Right, that was a, it was a light tank, right? It's a North yeah, Africa, yeah. I think. Yeah, they they uh, gave them to the the, the British, uh, and uh, it, it was uh, you know mass produced, but it, it was displaced by the Sherman tank later on. Well, you know, we should put in a petition. I'd like to see the the Hampton tank coming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll see. I mean, they have an Ab- Abrams. Abrams is uh, uh, yeah tank is uh, the big one these days, or, or has been. And, of course, you're at the Confederate Relic Room and Military Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any at the museum, or do you know of uh, Wade Hampton artifacts that have to do with the Civil War? Oh, well, that is one of the sort of sour points from our perspective, is that in Hampton's old age, um, he started presenting some of his relics, uh, his equipment, uniform, um, he gave them to Richmond, uh, the Museum of the Confederacy that the United Daughters of the Confederacy began in 1895. 
um, that was sort of the focal point of of uh, where Confederate memorabilia would go. And early uh, before he died, he presented his sword to them. Um, and there, we do have some artifacts, uh, but most of what we've got from Wade Hampton are from post-Civil War, from the time he was governor of South Carolina and then was a U.S. senator from the state. We, we don't have much in terms of his military uh, career in the collection. Ironically, we had to borrow the sword from uh, Richmond uh, some years ago for an exhibit, but then we had to return it. What, out of curiosity, was that the sword that you talked about at Gettysburg that he used? Well, he had two or three, and we uh, we think this was the sword he used at, at uh, Gettysburg, but it's not certain uh, from what I from the best I can determine. But we like to think so. He was the cav- uh, commander of the cavalry arm towards the end yes. of the Civil War, but then I mm-hmm. did hear he chose to go to South Carolina to defend his home once he heard that Sherman was going through. Is that true? That is true. Now, um, he, you know, was very concerned about what was going on in South Carolina. Um, And after Sherman had marched through Georgia and was uh, uh, stationed in Savannah at the end of 1864, People um, in South Carolina were unsure where his next uh, victim, so to speak, was going to be. But uh, in the new year, 1865, he he crossed the Savannah into South Carolina with two wings. And that's when people in the state were very afraid of what where he was going. They didn't know. Some thought originally thought he, they were he was heading to Charleston. Um, and that was what Sherman wanted people to think, but in reality, he was heading to Columbia. When it became clear by the middle of January that that there was a wing headed at least in that direction to the center of the state, Hampton requested leave to go and take his arm, or at least South Carolina squadrons of cavalry back to South Carolina to defend the state. He seemed to think that he could stop Sherman. Well, Lee really couldn't afford to give him up, but he realized that something needed to be done to give South Carolina some some kind of hope. And so he allowed uh, him to go back to South Carolina with a minimal number of people and see what he could do. So he came, got back down to Columbia in late January of 1865. But uh, uh it wasn't very long before it was clear that uh, there was little, despite Hampton's ability, that he could do. Because, first of all, there were only about 30,000 Confederate troops in the state. Most of those were older men, home guards that had very little training. And those veterans that were there, many of them were exhausted from their attempts to find a way to slow up uh, Sherman plus the fact that they were divided. You had some up in Aiken, you had a f- some down in Charleston, and then you had a few around Columbia. And uh, by the time Sherman began to approach the outskirts of, of Columbia on the 15th of February, 1865, it was very clear that no one, nobody, no matter what kind of uh, commanding presence they had, could stop Sherman's 60,000 troops. And... Um, 
this is where Hampton may have uh, miscalculated because he had initially told the city government and the mayor that he was going to defend the city. Um, and uh, but by that time, even the troops that he had were not the uh, not very disciplined. Joe Wheeler had troops that were actually looting some of the stores uh, in those last days before Sherman entered. And when Hampton tried to uh, stop them, they basically uh, told him, watch out or else he was going to get in trouble. And because he, Hampton realized how desperate things were, he just sort of backed off. There was nothing he could do. And um, he, he evacuated the city with the rest of the remaining Confederates uh, on the 17th of February. Um, he would continue to try to harry Sherman to the very end, but uh, by then the Confederate uh, military was in terrible shape. They lacked uh, both equipment and foodstuffs, and they were exhausted. Um, and uh, Sherman uh, Hampton was with Joe Johnson when he decided to surrender uh, to Sherman's troops in April of 1865, and initially Hampton refused to surrender. He didn't join in the surrender party. But he uh, headed back towards South Carolina. He joined his wife, and it seems his wife was the one that persuaded him that there was nothing more he could do, that fighting, continuing to fight was hopeless. He needed to uh, turn in his sword, and he reluctantly did uh, did that. Uh, he was one of those that actually, in the early days after Appomattox and the surrender in North Carolina, seriously considered either uh, leading a group into the mountains to continue as guerrillas or, failing that, leaving the nation entirely and going down to South America, as some former Confederates actually did. But uh, his wife and family, I guess, persuaded him that that was a rash move and he needed to stay to try to rebuild the state, and that's what he did. Um, could you just give a little bit about what happened after the war for Wade Hampton? Well, sure. I mean, Wade, Wade, yeah, well, Wade Hampton, you know, as I suggested at the beginning, devoted a lot of his fortune in forming the Legion. And then by the end of the war, um, he lost just about everything he had. Uh, when Sherman marched through Columbia in February of 1865, his soldiers burned his, his main house and the family house to the ground. Um, and of course, all of his slave workforce were emancipated, and he had a tremendous investment in them. And by 1868, he he went bankrupt. There, he had nothing left. Um, he tried various schemes uh, to get out of poverty. Uh, he was an insurance. He invested in an insurance company that failed. Um, but he became heavily involved in state politics. Uh, by the 1870s, and uh, he had a really difficult time dealing with Reconstruction. He mm. didn't really accept the idea that African Americans uh, were capable of being, you know, equal. Um, and while when he ran for governor in 1876, which was a very brutal and often bloody affair, where he claimed to want 
uh, uh, South Carolina African Americans to join him and support him, and he would uh, support the the uh, budding political movement within the black community. Um, in reality, once he became governor, he slowly uh, reduced the number of blacks in state and local government. He didn't get rid of them right away, but steadily worked got had them removed or they resigned. Um, and he is considered traditionally, certainly by white South Carolinians, as one who saved the state from Reconstruction government. I think uh, historians today would be would debate that significantly as being a huge service to the state. Um, but uh, he he did become governor and seemed to slowly put the state back into some sort of solvency. But he had a lot of enemies within the state, um, some of whom thought he was, had been too uh, accommodating to African Americans. Um, and uh, slowly, uh, after he was reelected in 1878, within a year, it was he was uh, kicked upstairs, so to speak, and the legislature voted him uh, to represent them in the U.S. Senate. Now, of course, people have to remember until 1913, most states' senators were elected by their legislatures, not by the people as it is now. Um, and so that was orchestrated, and he was stayed in the Senate for about 12 years, and then he was forced out in the early 1890s and uh, worked as a railroad commissioner for a time, went to a lot of um, reunions of Confederate veterans. Um, um, But his his economic uh, well-being was always tenuous. His home burned again in the late 1890s, and the state of South Carolina contributed money to build him a new house uh, that in his last years he lived in, and he died in April of 1902. And as you can imagine, there was a huge funeral for him. Um, And then um, four years later, they established an equestrian statue with him uh, on the horse that sits on the statehouse grounds today. So, uh, you know, Hampton's story is is rather tragic uh, in so many ways because he came from great wealth. Um, He tried his best to use that up to the end of the uh, beginning of the war to expand his family holdings. Uh, And then with the war, he devoted his wealth to trying to. Uh, defend and win the war with the Confederacy, and in defeat, he lost virtually everything. He'd lost both a brother and a son in the war, which added to the tragedy even more. Then he lost, uh, you know, his economic well-being, his homes, um, and for the rest of his life, he was in some ways trying to rebuild what he had lost. Um, and it's it's not too difficult when you think about it that what he was doing was trying somehow to return the state to that um, period when he had been very successful and his family had been uh, so prominent. Um, well, he he did gain respect uh, in at the end of Reconstruction for himself 
and some modeling of, I guess you might call it revenge, by uh, bringing back white rule. Uh, in the end, he he didn't even succeed in in uh, establishing reestablishing his authority and his distinction uh, in in South Carolina. That's a heck of a story, um, like you said. It's it's for him and personally, it's it's a little tragic. Yes, it it, it really is. Um, but uh, you know, he's. Uh, one of the more prominent ones. Uh, what would have happened if he had uh, been killed in battle? Would his reputation have lived on much more? Yeah, it's, who knows? We can't tell. Uh, right, right. But, uh, you know, there's some other distinguished leaders from South Carolina, Johnston Haygood, uh, uh, Kershaw. Uh, but I don't they don't quite reach the level of Hampton, I think in, in certain ways. And, uh, but you know, these biographies that have come out recently on Hampton, uh, I think have helped to reignite uh, some of the, the valor distinction of his life and particularly his military career. Um, and who knows, maybe historians are going to rethink his position in the uh, civil war as time goes on. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, when we just look about, it, I look at his Civil War career, leading from the front and even conducting, you know, raids like the Beefsteak Raid. Yep. You know that rival the raids of Forrester Stewart. I know you you just talked about it, but could you mention some of the books you might recommend to others that uh, would like to learn more about Wade Hampton? Well. Um... To my mind, uh, the uh, probably the best biography is Ron Andrews, uh, uh, the conservative uh, cavalier. Let me see if I can get the exact title for you. I should know it, but um, oh, let's see. Well, I don't have that. But Ron Andrews' uh, book is probably the best, most comprehensive um Biography of Hampton that was published by the University of North Carolina Press, um, and uh, you know there's there's two or three others that have some a good material in them that uh, you know like uh, Cisco's Wade Hampton was published before Andrews that has a lot of detail about his service his yeah, career the during the Civil I have War on my uh, bookshelf <laughs> yeah. But mm -hmm. Uh, those are two that I would suggest uh, taking a look at and finding out. You can find out more about him that way. And of course, if people want to uh, have the the hands-on experience, uh, they can go to the Confederate Relic Room, uh, Military Museum in South Columbia, South Carolina, which I've been to and I love. Uh, can you tell people a little bit more about the Confederate Relic Room and military museum? Sure. Um, we are a, an institution that was established by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, the group, the chapter here in Columbia in 1896. And uh, they operated the institution up into the eight, 1980s. And then slowly uh, the state, which had 
provided that some funds begin to take over its operation on a day-to-day basis. And uh, we're now located in the State Museum complex um, that's uh, near the Congaree River, um, where we have a, a set of permanent exhibits that sort of look at the military history of the state from the American Revolution right up to some of the more recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. But our our major emphasis in in the permanent exhibits is is the Civil War era, where we have um, you know weaponry, uniforms, um, and uh, then we have a section about Hampton and his career, and a particularly emph- uh, a lot about the post-Civil War uh, and, his, and his role in, during that time. Um, we don't have any particular, as I suggested earlier, artifacts of, from Hampton's career in the Civil War, um, but uh, we do talk about him and uh, our education curator, Joe Long, has a lot of programs that deal with Hampton and his, and his career during the Civil War. Do you have um, you have a website? Do you have Facebook, um, Instagram, YouTube, or other outlets where people can uh, contact you or learn more? Yeah, we have, we have a website. If they just Google the South Carolina Confederate Relic Room and Military Museum, uh, they can get a, a sense of what we have, the programs we do, uh, a little bit about our exhibits, and uh, they can also get uh, information on how to contact us if they have questions or want to set up tours. Uh, we welcome all everyone uh, to come, and uh, we can gear a tour if we know in advance to exactly what they would like us to, to focus on. Fantastic. I think we're coming to be about that time now. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, talking about Wade Hampton, uh, I'm I'm a big fan of Wade Hampton uh, and his Civil War exploits, and I'm glad that we could share this on the podcast. Thank you so much. Well, Paul, I appreciate you having me on, and um, if uh, we can talk some more on that or other things, feel free to get in touch again. Absolutely, absolutely. I definitely will. There's a whole bunch of uh, Civil War South Carolina history I'd love to cover. Great. Well, uh, thanks uh, for having me, and uh, I hope you have a, a good day. You too. Be safe. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to that episode of the Untold Civil War podcast. I hope we kept you entertained while you were cooped up in your apartment, blockade running, or even bounty jumping. As always, I'd like to give a shout-out to Craig Duncan for allowing me to use his music on this podcast. And if you haven't already, go ahead and follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook to stay up-to-date with the podcast. I'd also like to thank those who have given me a five-star review on iTunes. All those reviews help to get the word out. So bye for now, and I hope you tune in next time for our next episode.